Ready to uh, read the thing for us? Oh, yes. Frederick Harry Nye was having a bad day. Here he was, a respected man, a respected solicitor, a member of the British legal profession for nearly his entire life, and he was standing in the streets of London in his shirt and undergarments. Mustering whatever dignity he could, he marched himself promptly to the nearest police officer and demanded that his assault be investigated and his assaulter be arrested immediately. The constables gave him a pair of trousers and questioned and arrested the man responsible. Indeed, he proudly claimed responsibility for the act and told the constables the rest of the details of the afternoon. Frederick Harry Nye, he said, was a cad, a liar, and a thief. He needed to face justice for his actions, and if it took being thrown in jail to bring attention to the facts of the matter, he was willing to do so. It wasn't the first time he'd been jailed to prove a point. Frederick Nye, the solicitor, was, in fact, all of the things he had been accused of. He had orchestrated a scheme wherein he had written himself to be the main beneficiary of an elderly woman's will, a will she had signed off on with no real understanding of its contents or intent, and at her passing he had stood to become extremely wealthy. The one thing he hadn't counted on, however, was that his client had a cousin named Alfred Daniel Wintle, a man who didn't know the meaning of the word quit and a man who would dedicate himself to destroying someone who had wronged his family. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the landmark 1959 Wintle v. Nye court case. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, Temporary Solicitor General for Relative Destesteria. And I'm his sister Ella, Junior Paralegal for the law firm of Relative, Relative, and Disasters. Very prestigious. Yes, I have a corner office. Ooh, very nice. (laughs) Okay, so our primary sources for this episode... (laughs) Are <laughs> Alfred D. Wintle's uh, biography. Ooh, I bet he called... wrote a killer biography. It's so good. <laughs> Does he use a it's, lot of rhetoric? <laughs> it's called The Last Englishman. Okay. And it's amazing. It's amazing. A 1955 Times Magazine article and records of the judgment for the House of Lords in Wintle v. Nye, 1958. All right. Those are our main sources. And then there's just a lot of other fun stuff about Yeah, I feel like this might have ended up on a few listicles or (laughs) clickbait articles. (laughs) You won't won't believe believe what number four is. (laughs) Okay. So the facts of the case are actually fairly simple when translated from incredibly complex legalese. In fact, yeah, it sounds like elder the, abuse, isn't it? The language is deliberately, it deliberately obfuscates what it is, mm-hmm. okay? So Kitty Wells was the woman in question. She had inherited an immense sum of money from uh, ownership of real estate and properties mm-hmm. somewhere in the neighborhood of 115,000 pounds at the time of her death in 1947, which is equivalent to nearly eight and a half million pounds today. Oh, and those are pounds, not dollars. And those are pounds, not dollars. So not an insignificant chunk of change. No, that's a pretty healthy fortune. Yeah. She basically had no idea about most of it. She knew that she didn't really have to worry about money. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but she was well known to be kind of a space cadet, only vaguely aware of the two world wars that she had lived through. Oh, that, okay, that's a little beyond space cadet. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, one of her favorite pastimes, and I find this amazingly fun, Mm -hmm. uh, she absolutely delighted in sending herself letters every day. So her mail would arrive, she'd read the letter that she'd written to herself, and uh, be thrilled with the adventures that she was up to. Uh And then uh, she'd store it in a handbag under her bed. Apparently, when she ran out of space in that handbag, she'd go out and purchase another one. And when she ran out of space under her bed, she moved them to the closet. She seems like a perfectly pleasant woman, but not someone who pays fine attention to the fine print. Okay? That's the impression I'm getting, yeah. Yeah, she seems very sweet. Uh, Her younger cousin Marjorie, who is Alfred Wintle's sister, Mm -hmm. lived with her for the last decade or so of her life as a caregiver and companion, since the two of them had been dear friends since childhood. And Marjorie really kind of enjoyed taking care of her. Mm -hmm. Um, When Kitty Wells passed away, Marjorie found that the amount left to her in the will was not what it had been when she witnessed her friend's will a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And therein lies the first unraveling. Basically... Uh, Kitty Wells's will had been written and rewritten and addended uh, multiple times over the last decade. Mm-hmm. So instead of the money being divided up among the family, mm-hmm. a fraction of it was to go to Kitty's estranged sister, a portion to various charities, mm-hmm. and the rest of the amount, over half, was to go directly to the lawyer who had drawn up the new will, a Mr. Uh, Frederick Harry Nye. Yeah, you can't do that. So that's... Does that seem fishy to you? It seems a little fishy to me. Yeah, just because he's the lawyer who drew it up, you know, that's... It gets better. It gets better. uh, Uh, The only witnesses witnesses to the new will were Mm -hmm. Mr. Nye's clerks. Mm -hmm. Kitty had signed it, but there was a very real and valid chance that she had had no idea what she was signing. However, the solicitor had presented everything very legally and properly, and there seemed no cause for recourse, especially since the only person who could challenge the will was Kitty's aforementioned estranged sister and she had no interest in doing so Hmm. so alfred wintle uh he he preferred to go by ad wintle uh he wrote to several legal experts for help a few offered some limited advice in how he could acquire standing in the case Mm -hmm. um but all agreed that it was scandalous however an attack on the will would be seen as an attack on the profession of practicing law itself what and nobody was willing to take on this mess wait 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 are you telling me that people just did not sue bad lawyers at this time that is correct because lawyers were acting in the best interest solicitors were acting in the best interests of crown and country what an amazing time to be a lawyer right (laughs) you want to pull a scam this is the time (laughs) all right So a year later, Kitty's sister passed away as well, and everything, Nye's entire plan starts to fall apart. So since the sister had died intestate without Mm -hmm. leaving a will, her portion of Kitty's estate then had to be distributed among her cousins. So A.D. Wintle had his opening. He could get standing in the case now, but he couldn't get um, public attention on, you know, this is a bad lawyer. I mean, this so is he came up with a plan. Some bad lawyering. <laughs> he, Even he to me. He came up with a plan. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh, 
He posed as a Lord Norbury, an acquaintance of Frederick Nye's, to lure him to an apartment in Hove. And he murdered him. No. Once he had Nye in the room, he introduced himself and either produced a pistol or otherwise physically threatened the solicitor. Mm -hmm. Uh, They couldn't really agree on those. uh, To remove his trousers. Yes. Okay. Wintle then forced Nye to wear a paper dunce cap and took pictures, photographs, and then tossed him out onto the streets without his trousers. And while Nye went for the police, Wintle went for the press and told his story. And it worked, sort of. Uh, Wintle was promptly arrested. Uh-huh. Uh, and he had a great quote. <clears throat> I have to read this to you. Okay. Okay. Quote, It will be a sad day for this country when an officer and a gentleman is not prepared to go to prison when he thinks he is in the right. End quote. Right, but he took his pants. He did take his pants, and that's theft, if nothing else. It's, well, okay, it's a lot of things. <laughs> it's worth pointing out that Frederick Nye was 71 years old at this point. Okay. So Wintle was sentenced to six months at the Wormwood Scrubs prison, mm-hmm. uh, especially because responding to the prosecutor who asked if he regretted his conduct, he said, quote, not in the least, end quote. Yeah, uh, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's, he went in full barrel on this one. This is all the chips are in the middle of the table. He is doing what he wants to do here. Okay. So what what this did was it brought a ton of attention because they're like, oh, my goodness, how could you possibly do this to a solicitor? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Wintle was free to say, well, because he's doing this. And uh, reporting on the verdict, London's Daily Express said, quote, you may say or think what you like about Alfred Wintle. But here is an Englishman, end quote. Okay, that is a very loaded statement to make. The public embarrassment worked, and Nye could no longer hide behind his respectable solicitor veneer, with the press reporting on both the suspicious will and documenting what Wintle and Nye were doing. Mm -hmm. So the case finally went to court, where a jury upheld the will. Of course, there's more to that story. Right. So... The case was presided over by a Judge Bernard, who it seems had taken personal offense with A.D. Wintle, viewing his case as an attack on law itself and an attempt to embarrass the court. The judge gave instructions to the jury that essentially stated that they needed to uphold the will unless Wintle's team could prove that Mrs. Wells didn't know what she was signing. Mm -hmm. You might recognize the inherent problems with those instructions. One of the people on Wintle's legal team turned that around on the court, asking Mr. Nye to prove the inverse, that Mrs. Well knew and approved of the many alterations that benefited Mr. Nye. I mean, did she write a letter to herself about it? She did not. Interesting. That would have been good. Uh, Given said instructions, the the jury deliberated for two hours Mm -hmm. with lunch and uh, found for Mr. Nye. A.D. Wintle was hit with the court costs, as the judge Bernard said in his order, quote, he has had his fun and now must pay for it, end quote. So does that seem like an impartial judge to you? He's afraid for his own pants at this point, I think. I mean, he should be afraid. Undeterred, Wintle appealed the decision on the grounds of improper instruction to the jury by Bernard. The appellate court heard the case and dismissed it in a 2-1 decision. The dissenting judge stated that Bernard had unfairly prejudiced the jury, and the lack of unanimous decision left the door open to take the case to the House of Lords. Okay. 
There's only one problem, though, and it was significant. The court costs had piled up, and A.D. Wintle was very close to bankrupt. He refused to give up, however, and he decided that he would represent himself before the House of Lords without a solicitor, something completely unheard of, and whose only precedents had all met in abject failure. But of course, what abject failure hadn't met was A.D. Wintle. Right. Some background on our appellant here. Yeah, I am getting more and more curious. (laughs) Why is he the way he is, Greg? (laughs) (laughs) Alfred Daniel Wintle was born in Ukraine in 1897. Mm -hmm. His father was a British diplomat, and A.D. Wintle would be seven years old before he ever visited his home country of Great Britain. He was 15 when the Great War broke out, and he pestered his father until it was agreed to send him to the Woolwich Royal Academy to be trained as an officer. Mm -hmm. He completed the program in about four months, just past his 18th birthday, and was sent to the front as a lieutenant. Hmm. On his first night there, he met his sergeant. Shortly after the two had shaken hands, a German artillery shell struck nearby, killing the sergeant and covering Wintel with his remains. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah. The young man could think of nothing else to do but stand at attention and salute as the shells rained around him for about the next 30 seconds. He then went on to calmly perform his duties. Wintel's troops saw action at Ypres, the Somme, and Festubert. Each time, they were raked with fire and shell, but Wintel somehow emerged unscathed until 1917 in the Third Battle of Ypres. He was helping to wrestle an 18-pound field gun across the craters of the battlefield. Its wheel hit an unexploded shell, and Wintel regained consciousness in a military hospital. At the age of 19, he had lost an eye, several fingers, a kneecap, and badly damaged his remaining eye, requiring him to wear a monocle for the rest of his life. He was told that his war was over, that he'd done his duty for England, and would be sent home. Wintel was furious. He attempted to escape the hospital several times, once disguising himself as a nurse, but his mustache and monocle gave him away. Oh, gosh. Okay. Eventually, he forced his way back to the front by wrangling a rail warrant from a military contact of his father's, Mm -hmm. and spent the last year of the war, as he described it, quote, a moderately successful year, unquote where he single-handedly captured a unit of 35 German soldiers and important military intelligence, an action for which he was awarded the Military Cross for Heroism. The armistice was signed shortly thereafter. Uh, With regards to that honor, by the way, little tiny sidebar, he stated that he honestly couldn't figure out which incident they were referring to since there were more than a few candidates. Nevertheless, he accepted the medal graciously. I mean... (laughs) He basically did so many cool things. They're like, yeah, it's for one of them. Well, he's got a Um, monocle. I mean, how close of it? He's got a monocle. And and he's only got one knee. Like, what is he doing single-handedly capturing a whole platoon? It's crazy. I think they just see him coming and they're like, oh, it's that guy. Uh, Everybody surrender. It'll be safer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that Uh, is the strangest and wildest war career I've ever heard of. Oh, we're just getting started. Okay. So after the war ended... Wintel was transferred from the artillery to the Royal Dragoons, mm-hmm. the last horse-mounted regiment in the British Armed Services. All right. Uh, while riding around one day, he fell off of his horse, and then his horse stumbled and fell on him, breaking his leg. Which which one? Uh, the one with a kneecap or the one with? I assume so. 
Maybe it was the one without. Who knows? Uh, While recovering in the hospital, he found their trumpeter, a 16-year-old boy named Cedric Mays, dying of an illness. Wintel hobbled over to the young man's bedside and bellowed at him that no dragoon ever dies in bed and he must stop this business at once. Oh, jeez. Okay. Mays made a full recovery. (laughs) Because he was scared not to. Because, because as he put it, he did not see another option. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) And he and Wintel were friends for the rest of Wintel's life. Um... Also well in the hospital, Wintle began a second career as an author, stating that he had, quote, become bored with reading books and decided to write one instead. And sure. Um, the book he wrote was called The Emancipation of Ambrose, and it's a very charming read uh, about a civil servant being mistaken by like spies as a master assassin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had it published under the pen name of Michael Cobb because Wintle was concerned that it would be seen as undignified for an officer in the Dragoons. I think that's fair, yeah. Uh, he also took some time to teach in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was fluent in French, and while he was there, he was guest lecturing at a military college, which had him make friends with a bunch of the French Air Force officers. Mm -hmm. This is the thing about Wintel that that really strikes me. He seems like one of those people who is just legitimately off, Mm -hmm. but he makes friends everywhere he goes. Well, okay. I I kind of understand that. You want a little crazy in your friend group. I mean, you want want someone who's, who's a little bit creative, a little bit challenging. And it all seems like good crazy. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it, none of it seems like so I'm going to light myself all... on fire and drop off a roof. It's like, this no, I'm going to refuse. Yeah, it's, it's fairly positive stuff. So A.D. Wintel saw the writing on the wall in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, he knew what war looked like on its way. And he knew that Germany was remilitarizing. And he also knew, and we don't talk about this a lot, but France was on the verge of basically a civil war. And if Germany invaded, there couldn't possibly be a unified response from their military. Now, he had friends, again, in the French Air Force, Mm -hmm. that were veterans of the First World War. And they were not going to surrender to Germany under any circumstances. Sure. And so A.D. Wintel sort of hatched half of a plan with them that was basically, look, if they invade, fly over to Britain and join our Air Force. So, not a plan, but an idea, I guess? Sure, sure. And then the war broke out. Now, at this point, Alfred Daniel Wintel was 40 years old, and he immediately demanded to be transferred to the front lines. (laughs) I mean... He's he's one-eyed, (laughs) one-legged. He's still got one eye left. Yeah, exactly. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, They told him, they told him no. Um, I wonder why. And what they did was they put him behind a desk in the intelligence uh, department. That seems like a good fit. Sure, sure. However, he knew that his French friends were in trouble. Okay. So so when the French surrendered in 1940, uh, A.D. Wintel kind of attempted to steal a military airplane to go get his friends. Oh, so you do not want him in intelligence after all. I guess not. Uh, so he went to the local airbase near London. Mm-hmm. He dropped the name of the current RAF Commodore mm-hmm. and uh, basically said, listen, you guys need to prep a plane to take the Commodore to Bordeaux. Uh, unfortunately for him, the Commodore was actually at the airbase. Mm-hmm. And when A.D. Wintel showed up, he was kind of 
what are you doing? <laughs> Which I think is an understandable reaction. Uh, somebody ordered a plane for me and it wasn't me. Do you mind explaining? Uh, to which A.D. Wintle pulled out a gun. Okay. Now, he held the gun up to one of the stumps of his fingers. Oh, geez. And said, if it will show you how serious I am, I will shoot off my stump. But, you know, oh, the Commodore's okay. guards, the Commodore's guards took his gun away and uh, put him under arrest. What? Why was now, he allowed to have guns? Can I just... Uh... He was in the military. <laughs> He was in the military. <laughs> he just doesn't seem like the kind of person who should have been packing. Well, okay. He Sorry, was go very ahead. efficient with them during the First World War. No, no. I believe that. I believe that. So, I mean, obviously it probably wouldn't have made any difference at all because, you know, France had fallen by that point. Right. But, you know, he, he was trying to help his friends. And we all can understand that. Uh, okay. So, here's the thing. So, he's put on a train uh-huh. with a warrant to uh, basically report to the Tower of London because you're under arrest. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow. That seems appropriate. Somehow the guard that was in charge of the arrest warrant lost it. Lost the warrant or lost Wintel? The warrant. Okay. The warrant. So A.D. Wintel uh, went to the train station got a new arrest warrant and then as the most senior officer present signed it and continued on his voyage. I'm so confused. <laughs> I love this guy. This is a real person? This is not this like... This is a real person. Okay. I know. Are you sure? Okay. He is documented to have existed. Um, <laughs> okay. So he shows up at the Tower of London, which of course is under the Scots Guard. Uh-huh. They initially thought he was a traitor or a spy, mm. but then once everybody sort of figured out why he was actually there... Um, his cell sort of became party central. Like the guards would just show up and hang out and play cards. People would bring bottles of wine over and just, you know, chat. (laughs) Okay. So he seems like he had a lot going on, but he also seems like he would have been a really good storyteller. Is that accurate? Sure. Okay. Uh, his book is a great read. Okay. A great, great read. Mm. High recommendation. Anyway. So he's brought up to trial. On, on three charges. Okay, so um, the charges were brought by the RAF, but because Wintel was an army officer, mm-hmm. he was going to be tried by an army court. Right. And the army court wasn't really going to worry too much about what the RAF thought of them. So the first charge was malingering by feigning defective eyesight to avoid active duty. Okay, that's the charge. That's the official That's name of one the of the charges. Okay. That's one of the charges. That's the one they lead off with. I just love how specific that is. You <laughs> oh, know yeah. somebody's tried that before. <laughs> like this is yep. this is only the latest malingering eye yeah. incident we've had. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, which he disproved by taking out his glass eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then having a medical examiner <laughs> look him over for like all of two seconds and then being like, yeah, no, he's fine. <laughs> Second charge was threatening to shoot an RAF officer. Again, very specific. Very specific. Um, he he could have countered this by claiming he was only attempting to shoot his own hand, but instead he reached, he started to read off a list of people he also felt deserved to be shot. Okay, okay. 
So the prosecution decided that they didn't want that in the court records. So by the time he had gotten to like the sixth name down, they dropped the charges. Now, in the end, uh-huh. the only charge that he actually faced was that of assaulting the RAF Commodore. His right. punishment, his punishment was a formal reprimand. I mean, that sounds Naughty, fair. naughty A.D. Wintel. Don't do that again. No more stealing planes. <laughs> Did they, like, downgrade his monocle and... I don't oh, know. Oh, they should have. They should have. <laughs> Did they give him a smaller right. desk for his intelligence well, work? However, they kind of figured they should probably get him out of London. You know, I feel like it's retirement time for him. I feel like he should no. he should be gardening. Oh, no. He should be nope. train spotting. The only gardens uh, he wants are the gardens <laughs> of his fallen foes. Maybe it's time to volunteer at the animal shelter. I just, I don't, I don't no, think got, that, he's got goals. that this is the right spot for him. He's got goals. We all have so, goals, uh, but some of those goals are not good. So the best way he mm-hmm. could help the war effort is was, to go vegetables. To, was to go to Cairo. Sure. To rejoin the Royal Dragoons. Absolutely. Why not? Who were who were fighting against the Vichy in the Middle East. Right. And in 1941, of course, there was the coup in Iraq, which ousted the pro-British government. And the new ruler of Iraq, uh, you know, turned to the Axis. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they had Vichy ground forces and a small squad- squadron of Luftwaffe. Um and in May, the British invaded and restored the previous government, so whatever. So the Vichy had surrendered by mid-July, mm-hmm. and that had left control of the area to the Free French, who promptly restored the local governments. Now, that means that A.D. Wintel doesn't have anything to do. Oh, we don't want that. And we don't want that. <laughs> he needs a project. <laughs> he needs something to keep him busy. So, he obviously settles on, infiltrate Vichy France, and uh, be a spy. Sure. Because what else can a one-legged man with a monocle (laughs) do? I mean, those guys blend into crowds like you would not believe. Like you would absolutely not believe. Because I would not believe that they blend into crowds. Anyway. Now, he did have some some benefits because, as Mm -hmm. we said before, he's fluent in French. Right. And because he had taught there, he would go in in disguise as as a school teacher who, you know, had been displaced. All right. Right. There was one problem. And the problem was that his contact in the French resistance was actually a double agent for the Vichy. Oh, yeah, that's not good. So he arrives in France and is immediately arrested. But, again, the old winter luck pulls through, right. and he doesn't get executed as a spy. Instead, he gets sent to a prison camp, and again, told that his war was over. I mean, he's now, in prison, so... He's in... Yeah, obviously. Now, his when he arrives to the prison camp, mm-hmm. the first thing he says to the commandant in charge is that as an officer... And a gentleman, it is my duty to escape. Oh, boy. Now, the guy in charge uh, was named Maurice Molia. Mm -hmm. And he then lit into Molia, telling him that he and his men are traitors. And that uh, they're they're traitors to the French. They're traitors to humanity in general. Just general traitors. Okay. And, and their uniforms are shoddy 
Oh. Now that got it. That got him thrown into solitary confinement. Yeah, I mean, that is just mean. You, that, he crossed the line. I would not. He he, we all have line. boundaries. We all have boundaries, and uh, that's a mean one. Okay. <laughs> so he tried to escape basically every single day. Um, he got as far as successfully getting himself out of the prison camp and then was immediately recaptured because he checked into a local hotel because he was in dire need of a shower. Sure. I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, absolutely. So he gets, absolutely. he gets thrown back into the prison camp. And then he hatches onto his best scheme yet, which is to go on hunger strike until uh-huh. his only demand was met. And his only demand was that he conduct military inspections on the guards in the prison camp. That's his demand. Okay. His demand is that you guys look so shabby that I am going on hunger strike until I am allowed to inspect you. I mean, that there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> there's so much to unpack. <laughs> so he goes on hunger strike for a while. And Molia tries to break him of his strike by at first refusing to give him any food and water. Giving uh-huh. everybody food and water but him. Okay. Finally, trying to force feed him, which uh, to which uh, Wintel simply re- responded that whatever you force down this throat will come back up it. Ew. He Malia had his personal chef come and prepare a feast right outside of Wintel's like cell, basically, mm-hmm. and uh, to to entice him to eat and. Uh, Wintel merely stated that he wasn't feeling very hungry that day. Okay. So after two weeks, Malia finally relents and tells Wintel that he would be allowed to carry out his inspections. Wintel's response is beautiful. He says, thank you very much. Uh, However, it is now 730. So that since I normally dine at seven, I will take my first meal at breakfast tomorrow. Okay. Okay. I just So he starts to carry out daily inspections on these guards. And he's like inspecting their shoes, their uniforms, their haircuts, everything, right? Is he mean about it? I feel like he is super mean about he's it. He's very strict about it. He's uh-huh. not mean. That's the thing. He's, <laughs> okay. he's very seldom like like you think mean like he's insulting them, but he's not. He's just like, "Nope. Your shoes are not in order. That belt is not in order. That shirt is not tucked in. That hair is a little bit too something, you know. Mm -hmm. Also, his real plan, of course, was to run these military inspections, giving him a chance to reconnoiter the camp. Right. Okay. Which allows him to make his successful escape attempt. He saws through the bars of one of his cells using one of his bed springs. (laughs) Yep. Okay. Okay. And he hops he hops into a cart that had been there for deliveries that day. He mm-hmm. sneaks into the back of the cart. And by the time they notice he's missing, he's way out of the camp. He manages to make it to Spain and then back to uh to Britain. However, sure. sure. The legend requires a little bit of a of a sidebar here because we need to follow up with our friend Maurice Molia. Many, many years later, 
Uh, on the television show This Is Your Life, no less, A.D. <laughs> Wintle is brought face-to-face with Maurice Malia for the first time since his escape, where he is informed that after Wintle had escaped, Malia had freed all of the prisoners and mm-hmm. his in- and his entire squad of men deserted from the Vichy and joined the French resistance. I just can't get my head around okay. this. <laughs> like, if this was a novel, I think I would stop reading at this point. Right? <laughs> like, if this if somebody were telling me this story, I'd be sitting here going, okay, where's the joke? I'm trying what, to suspend the, my disbelief. What's the punchline? Like, what, what am I... <laughs> I'm waiting for the shoe to drop that's like, and then his, you know, something. But no, this is just his life. Okay. Uh, Okay. He rides out the rest of the Second World War at a desk in London. Uh, He marries his wife. And after... (laughs) The one adventure he has not been on yet. The one adventure he had not been on. And when peace was declared, he Mm -hmm. retired with full pay for disability. Uh, He first tried going into politics mm-hmm. uh campaigning in the 1945 uh election for norwood as a liberal mp uh his his slogan was characteristic let's uh-huh. say <laughs> quote the first man to enter parliament with good intentions since guy fox end quote <laughs> well yep. it is memorable yep he also made the news for driving a car into one of his friend's houses, mm-hmm. uh, directly into the living room, where he parked, got out of the car, saw his friend's wife, who had been sitting in the living room and was somewhat shocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, he apologized and prescribed sherry for her nerves, which he then went off to the local pub to acquire. Hmm. He did not win his election, by the way, just to be clear about that. Yeah, I'm not sure I would vote. I, I admire him. I think he's a mm-hmm. lot of fun, but I am not sure I would I wouldn't vote, vote for him. him. Yeah, yeah, no. I, he's the kind of guy you might want to invite over for a dinner once in a while, but maybe not no a alcohol. babysitter. No alcohol. Absolutely nope, no alcohol. No booze. Um, he applied for a job at NATO, but was refused <laughs> on the grounds that he was his dress was, quote, too military. Ouch. Okay. Uh, He kept writing his books, which he really loved to do. And then we reach his final and maybe greatest battle. And that is the court case. So we're back to the court case. All right. So his cousin has absolutely been taken advantage of by a shady lawyer. Mm -hmm. And... In the first trial, mm-hmm. the judge basically told the jury to find against A.D. Wintle personally. Mm-hmm. In the appeal, they said that he had no grounds to appeal except for that one dissenting judge who said, yes, they absolutely have grounds to appeal this. Yeah, I mean, it did sound like he had some grounds. Just, yeah, just to the layperson. Yeah, Me. just... <laughs> it just sound like it was done. a little shady. I don't know. Yeah, just a bit. Just a, just a, just a bit. Okay. So we come to 1958. We are a full 11 years after the death of his cousin. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he is to appear before the, the House of Lords to argue his case. And, uh, he has to do it without a solicitor present. 
Right. But does this seem like the kind of person who needs a solicitor? I ask No, it doesn't. So, the 12 lords of law mm-hmm. return a unanimous verdict. The will is struck down. The judge had misdirected the jury. And they're all going to start over from point A, basically. Mm-hmm. And justice was done. Basically, their decision only really entitled A.D. Wintle to a fresh trial. Mm-hmm. But uh, the embarrassment was so great that Nye had to withdraw from the case and didn't contest any of the disputed will. Okay? Interesting. So the disputed okay. will gets chucked. The mm-hmm. original will gets enforced. And, and uh, you know, the, the law community really turned away from Frederick Nye because the lawyers had, had basically done the same thing the judge had done. They mm-hmm. had viewed this as Wintel, you know, accusing all lawyers and, and, and to save their reputation, they had to uphold this thing. But because everybody saw this for what it was, mm-hmm. which was a dude taking advantage of somebody. Yeah, I mean, um, clearly. The, the, the rest of the law community turned against him as well. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, Frederick Nye was struck off the role of solicitors, which in the United States oh. uh, would, be, would be the same as disbarment, only a little bit worse. It's a little more shameful, I suppose. And the Law Society of Britain changed the rules mm. so that any lawyer who did the same as Nye had done, that, that action would serve as automatic grounds to be struck off the roll. Interesting. Yep. Now, no one had gotten a unanimous verdict before the House of Lords in a while, mm-hmm. let's just say. And no one had ever done it without a solicitor. <laughs> I mean, he had a solicitor. It was himself. It was himself. <laughs> and it sounds like he was um, pretty effective. He was very effective. Uh, he passed away in 1966, mm-hmm. having written millions of words of prose. And his friend, who was a military author by the name of Alastair Revy, uh, organized them. And published A.D. Wintle's autobiography as The Last Englishman in 1968. Hmm. And uh, it is a heck of a read, my friends. It is a heck of a read. And uh, finally, mm-hmm. after Wintle had passed away, the editor of The Times published a letter from him uh, that he had decided not to publish at the time, but had kept because it was one of his favorite letters that he'd ever received. Here is the letter in its entirety. Oh, boy. Quote, Sir, I have just written you a long letter. On reading it over, I have thrown it into the waste paper basket. Hoping this will meet with your approval, I am, sir, your obedient servant, A.D. Wintle. End quote. Okay. I wish more letters were like that. I had a thought. I thought better of it. I hope you're having a nice day. (laughs) Still gonna send you something. Still gonna send you something. Because I don't want you to have no mail, because no mail makes you sad. Anyway. It's not wrong. Everybody likes getting mail. That is... So that is the story... Quite a tale. ...of A.D. Wintle, 
And that is the story of the landmark Wintel v. Nye court case, which decided not only their case, but decided how lawyers would operate in the future Mm -hmm. when it came to wills. For example, any solicitor who would benefit from a will Mm -hmm. has to have that will not only signed off on by the person, but that person has to have that reviewed by another solicitor before they sign off on it. Okay. Just as an extra layer of protection. Mm -hmm. And... It changed how it literally changed the law because technically speaking, the House of Lords went against the letter of the law in that verdict. Mm -hmm. They went with the spirit of the law, but they went against the letter. And uh, you still won. Yeah. It's amazing. And that is the story of the remarkable life of Alfred Daniel Wintle. That was a wild ride. It's a, such a wild ride. It's a I'm wild a ride shaken. on a horse. <laughs> where you fall off, break your leg, and then lose scold, an eyeball. And then scold somebody <laughs> into healing their deathly illness. Sure, sure. <laughs> like you do. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available at our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly. Please, we love it. But you may not take our pants. Why not use our (laughs) Instagram at relative.disasters? Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. So what's it going to be, Ella? Do you know what we don't talk about enough? Uh, sporks. No, I think we talk about sports plenty. I think we've probably actually talked about <laughs> sporks the right amount. What What don't we talk about enough? Semi-rigid airships, Greg. Ooh, we don't talk about semi-rigid airships enough. We don't, and there have been some pretty spectacular disasters. Yep. Uh, next week, we're going to be covering the one you've probably heard of. Yeah. Yep. The Hindenburg disaster. Yep. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot in that there's a lot and then when you get into it and realize how yes yes popular and dangerous blimps were (laughs) for about five minutes (laughs) there are some really interesting stories in there so uh, next week we're going to be talking about one of the more famous ones cool well that sounds amazing and i can't wait to talk about it with you